morning, everybody. Uh, good morning. My name is Eric Chifrudi. If you don't know me, I'm one of the elders here. And uh, Aaron, who is, uh, does most of the teaching, he's on holiday, which is what they call that in Europe. He's on vacation, basically. And I have a little note from him. Hang on one second. I've reached a point where I can no longer uh, look at my notes without glasses. So he says, well, we just got to Rome. Paris was cold. Well, he says, but cold. Um, <clears throat> but the people were very nice, surprising. In Italy, well, Rome, everyone is rude and mean. He said, last night we went out to eat and we were totally lost. Somehow we ended up getting like seven complete meals and all I asked for was rice. He says, but to be fair, I asked by pointing and speaking like I normally do, really fast. He says, so we got the potato meal, the rice meal, the eggplant meal, the cheesy ball of fried rice meal, the ham and cheese meal, the spinach meal, and the pasta meal. This is why I should just order pizza. So if you, uh, if you know Aaron and food, then uh, you probably don't. That's why you don't get that joke. Um, you know, he said that they, they went on this trip because he was inspired by the movie Up, where he didn't want to you know, get to the end of his life and miss the opportunity to take Mary Ann to Italy. I think now while he's there, he's probably going to be more inspired by the movie He'd Pray Love, where he's going to be praying for something he loves to eat, because he's really picky. Anyway, welcome. Uh, Happy New Year. We have Bibles in the back. You're going to need your Bible today. If you don't have a Bible, we do have them back there. You can use one of those. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep one, take it home with you. And uh, if you've become addicted to the smartphone, you version a uh, Bible that has the scripture notes on it, uh, their server crashed. It doesn't work today. I don't know if it's a New Year thing or what, but sorry about that. I was looking for it all morning. We do have uh, the scripture notes on the communion table, so if you want to follow along with the notes, you can do that too. So uh, let's get started. Um, go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> this is Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. And it says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers who say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus, which is great news for us, Lord. I pray that you would uh, teach us this morning, Lord, the, the truth and the reality of your gospel and what it means and your awesome salvation. And we lift this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. <clears throat> so... Did I say Happy New Year? Happy New Year. Um, so I've got the pulpit for the next two weeks, and I was thinking to myself, well, you know, what could I do? What should I do? And I thought, well, the book of Jude would be a great book to go to because it's only 25 verses, right? Um, so I got into it. I started looking at it, and I realized, you know what? I probably need eight weeks to really do it justice. I mean, there's so much history and so many unique and almost bizarre accounts that really should be explored. But we're going to fly over at about 10,000 feet, and we're going to cover it in two weeks. And so this is part one. And so 
If you uh, end today and maybe you have a few questions, make sure you come to part two, because hopefully we'll answer some of those. But I can't think of a better way to uh, start the new year than on a negative note. Are you with me? We're going to be talking about false teachers, God's judgment, hellfire. It's going to be awesome, really. It's going to be great. But, you know, if we start with the worst, it can only get better from there, right? At least we hope. Um, most of us don't like to focus on the negative. And maybe that's why the book of Jude is actually one of the most neglected books in the New Testament. And as we'll see, Jude has a lot to say about the dangerous and the damnable practices and teachings of certain false teachers. And although you know, it may not be our first choice, most of us understand the need for negative now and then, especially in the Christian life. It's important that you know, we're warned of the dangers to our faith so that we can steer clear of those. And, you know, today we are inundated with all kinds of, quote-unquote, Christian teaching. And because of this, it's easy in our day to lose sight and lose concern for the truth. Now, Jude knew that there were some things that were true, and there were some things that were false. And he believed Jesus' claim that the truth will set you free. And he also understood that what you believe not only changes and affects your behavior, but it means the difference between an eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell. And what I find interesting is that he, Jude concentrates less on what the false teachers are actually teaching and more on how they were living. So we're going to begin in Jude, verse 1. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Now, like the author of many ancient letters, Jude, he identifies himself, he identifies who he's writing to, and then he offers them a typical greeting. Now, not many Christians are familiar with Jude outside of this letter. And the actual name Jude, the way it's spelled here in most English Bibles, only occurs here in Jude 1. But the Greek word translated here occurs 43 times in the New Testament. And it's usually translated Judah or Judas, and it can refer to up to six different people in the New Testament. But through the process of elimination, it's pretty certain here that the Jew that's writing this letter is Jesus' half-brother, who's mentioned in Mark 6, where people are saying, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't, isn't this Mary's son, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Now, there are other Judases mentioned in the Scripture, but only one who's the brother of James, who is also the half-brother of Jesus. So Jude, like James in his letter, he calls himself here a servant of Jesus Christ. Now this is a big deal. We, we kind of gloss over and miss it, but this is a big deal to Jewish Christians to whom Jude is writing because they would recognize that phrase as the title given to people like Moses and given to people like David as servants of the Most High God, the one and only true God. And so in the Jewish mindset, this implied that Jesus is to be worshipped and served as God. And that was a major deal, a major shift to these new churches, new believers. Now, why doesn't Jude refer to himself as Jesus' brother? Why doesn't he just say, you know, I'm Jesus' brother? It's because his relationship to Jesus as his servant carries more weight and authority to address Jesus' church than his relationship to Jesus as his physical brother. Now, Jude, he addresses his recipients as those who have been called. We see that here. And those who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that I want to look at here and that I want to point out is that 
we have received a gospel of grace. And we, you have to keep this in mind because we're going to get into some heavy stuff. We, we have received a gospel of grace. The faith that we as, as believers have received is a gospel of grace from beginning to end. It all starts with grace. I mean, to even come to faith in Christ, a person must be called. In the scriptures, they overwhelmingly state that being a Christian is the result of God's gracious reaching out through the gospel to bring helpless sinners into a relationship with himself. The Apostle Paul, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. So it's clear here that this calling, it's not simply just a general invitation, as if God was inviting us to a party and we could either accept or we could decline. But it is a specific call by God to those whom He has chosen, where He powerfully and He successfully brings them to faith through the preaching of the gospel. Even our ability to, to believe is only the result of God's grace. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, verse 8, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. What's not from yourselves? It's the grace that we've been saved with through faith. The whole thing, it's not from ourselves. It's the gift of God, he says, not by works so that no one can boast. The very faith with which we believe Although it's our faith, it's not from ourselves. It's the gift of God's grace. And this is why we have no reason at all to boast. It's the result of us being loved by God, Jude says. And because God loves us, Jude said, He, he also keeps us. He keeps us by Jesus Christ. Some translations here, they say, kept for Jesus Christ. Either way, the point is that because of God's grace and His love for us, He also preserves and He protects us to ensure that we make it to the very end. And whether we die and we go to be with the Lord or whether Jesus comes again, God protects us and He shields us through faith to make sure that we will stand in the presence of Christ. Now this salvation that we experience through faith is completely the result, again, of God's grace from beginning to end. We have received a gospel of grace. Now why does Jude start by emphasizing these ideas here? It's because he's, just, he's getting ready here to go hardcore prophet on his readers, warning them about false teachers that have crept into the church. They're preaching a false gospel, and they're practicing ungodliness in the church. And so not to give the impression that the focus of the gospel is on human effort or human endurance, Jude stresses God's supernatural calling, and he reminds them of God's effective grace to keep them until their final salvation. Let's look at verse 3. He says, Dear friends, or beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Jude was intending here to write an uplifting, positive letter about our awesome salvation that we all share, but he's compelled here to change his tone, and he gets very serious here about the need to defend the faith that was once for all handed down to God's people. Now, what is this faith that we are to contend for and hold on to? Jude refers to this faith or this body of doctrine 
um, that we've been entrusted with as the non-negotiables of Christian beliefs that have been passed down from the apostles to us. It's things like Jesus' holy life, His atoning death, His resurrection, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, salvation by grace through faith, and as we'll see here in the rest of Jude's letter, godliness that flows from God's grace in Christ. I want to look at two examples of this from the apostles. First, the apostle Paul. Uh, if you've got your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> I'll give you a minute. Who has their Bible here? Raise your hand. All right, good for you. The Apostle Paul writes this. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you, have, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve. After that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, but though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. One more. Let's look at what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> um, Peter writes, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. These are just two examples of the faith or the body of doctrine that have been passed down to us as the church. And we have received, as we see here, a gospel of grace. Now the second thing, second point I want to point out is that this gospel of grace is a gospel of godliness. This gospel of grace is a gospel of godliness. And I, I want to look at that in the book of Titus. Turn there with me. The book of Titus. The Apostle Paul writes in Titus chapter 1. I told you, you're going to need your Bible today. Titus chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, he says this. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to what? you have it? Godliness. That leads to godliness. A faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Turn over to chapter 2 of Titus, starting in verse 11. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to what? ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and what? 
godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jude urges believers here to strive intensely for the faith that was passed down from the apostles, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel of grace that leads to godliness. Why is he so concerned about this? We see back in Jude, in verse 4, why? In verse 4 he says, For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. Certain men, it's a derogatory term for the people that have crept in unknowingly into the church. He calls them godless, which, like the word ungodly, uh, it's kind of a broad term that encompasses any thinking or any behavior that God does not approve of or doesn't meet God's standards. Now, this is an important word for, for Jude because this best describes those who are in the church that are threatening the faith. And so these men showed a practical godlessness by the way that they were living. And Jude tells us here that they change or they pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. Now, he's especially referring to the sins of the flesh here, sexual immorality, greed, and, and the like. They twist God's free grace and free forgiveness in Christ into an open season for all kinds of sin. And Jude said that they also deny Jesus Christ and the sovereign Lord. Now, how do they do this? It was by their practical denial of Jesus Christ, by their behavior. They denied God's sovereign right to demand obedience from his people. Now, it, it probably their logic probably went something like this. They probably said something like, well, didn't God's grace take care of our sins completely on the cross? How then can there be any penalty for sin anymore? We should just be able to live however we want and how we like. But that's obviously not the case. And this is similar to what uh, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus uh, said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. These people preached a gospel of grace without godliness, without godliness, which is no gospel at all. The third thing that I want to point out, and this is an important point, we're going to camp out here for a while. Grace without godliness leads to Gehenna, or judgment. How many know what Gehenna means? Anybody? I'll explain it for those of you that don't know a little bit later. But grace without godliness leads to Gehenna, or judgment. We see in Jude verse 5 here, he says, Though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. We know that Jude is writing to Jewish Christians because he reminds them 
uh, here of three examples from the Old Testament that they would be familiar with of sin and of God's judgment. And then he applies them to the godless men that are actually creeping into the church. And in verse 5, Jude points first to the Exodus. Now you can find this in Exodus uh, chapter 6 through 14, which was the defining event that actually brought Israel, the people of Israel, into being. Now God brought plagues upon Egypt through Moses, and he forced Pharaoh to let his people go. God miraculously opened up the sea for them to escape, and he destroyed the armies of Egypt when they chased after them. But Jude reminds his readers that even though they were delivered from Egypt, many of them never got to experience the promised land and the blessings of the promised land. And in Numbers 14, we see that a whole generation wandered in the desert until they died because they didn't believe that God would give them the promised land, and they didn't believe and obey. And so it's a warning to us. It's a warning to the church. And it's a warning here to anybody who thinks that an initial commitment to Christ secures the future destiny without ongoing obedience. Those who truly belong to God demonstrate the genuineness of their salvation by responding in faith to the warnings that are given. This is one of the ways that God preserves his children, by heeding those warnings. Now, their disobedience here demonstrated that although they were a part of the nation of Israel, that they were not really a part of God's chosen people. And it's possible that the men who were creeping into the church and, and, and teaching false teachings, that they believed that they were actually part of God's people as well. But Jude insists here that, they can, that continued faithfulness is the only way to demonstrate this. God calls us to believe in His promises all the way to the very end. And then in verse 6, in verse 6, Jude points to what most would consider kind of a bizarre story of angels who didn't keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home. He's referring here to a popular tradition associated with a story in Genesis chapter 6 about the sons of God who came down to earth and uh, cohabitated with the daughters of men. And here we see that there are angels that rebelled against God by leaving their heavenly spheres of influence and ministry and they came to the earth and they took the form of men and they married women and they had offspring that were giants and they totally corrupted the earth. And Jewish interpreters at the time built an elaborate story on the basis of this text that identifies the sons of God as evil angels and that they were the source of much evil uh, during that time. And much of this story is found in a book called First Enoch, which it's a Jewish religious book that was never considered scripture by either Jews or Christians. But Jude quotes from it in verses 14 and 15, and he's probably alluding to it here as well. And so it's clear that he believes that the story in Genesis 6 was about these angels, and he believes that it's a true story. And Jude is saying that God judged the angels because of their rebellion and because of their sexual immorality, and that he has kept, he has, he has, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. And so Jude's point here is that those living ungodly lives will experience judgment. Even these celestial beings, he's saying, did not escape God's judgment when they violated what was fitting. And so Jude, here he encourages the church to resist those that are perverting the gospel by their immorality. And in verse 7, so here in verse 7, Jude refers to probably one of the most striking stories of God's judgment in the Bible. It says, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. 
Now, in Genesis chapter 19, we find the account of these cities being so corrupt and so immoral that God sends angels to see for themselves before he completely destroys the cities. And when they arrive, the angels arrive, they're greeted by a godly and hospitable man named Lot who persuades them to stay at his house as a guest. And the Bible tells us that all of the men from every part of Sodom, both young and old, all the men, every part of Sodom, both young and old, they surround Lot's house and they demanded that these angels be handed over to them. They thought they were men because they wanted to have sex with them. They basically wanted to gang rape them. That's the level of wickedness that was going on here. And Lot pleads with them not to do this wickedness. And he even offers his own two virgin daughters for them to do whatever they want. It's like, well, don't do this to these men, but here are my two virgin daughters. You can do whatever you want to them. I mean, nice dad, right? I mean, come on. But the men of Sodom, these guys are so filled with lust. They're so filled with lust for these strange men that they continue searching for the door, trying to break down the door. And even after the angels blind them, they continue to look for the door in order to find these men. It's a picture. It's a graphic picture of enslaving lust. Now, long story short, the angels force Lot and his family to escape before destroying the cities. And we read in Genesis 19, in verse 24, it says, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were guilty of other sins. But according to Jude, God judged them. He judged them for their sexual immorality and for their homosexual practices in particular. The word perversion here in the NIV literally says, went after other flesh in the Greek. And within the context here, it's clear that it's referring to men having sex with other men. And so Jude here, he ties the behavior of these false teachers in the church back to these men. And uh, he says that they're using God's grace to cover their own sexual immorality. And this example that he gives, this punishment of eternal fire, it's not merely a historical example that we see here, but it's also prophetic of the judgment that's in store for these ungodly and these rebellious that are in the church if they don't repent. Let's look at verse 8. I told you this was going to be great. Let's look at verse 8. In the very same way, he says, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, they reject authority, and they slander celestial beings. Now here, Jude leaves no doubt that the application and the connection of these Old Testament examples refers to these ungodly opponents that are in the church. And he ties it all together by saying, just like these Old Testament examples of sin, these people are committing the same types of sins. And he calls them dreamers here. And this actually refers to real dreams or visions that they are claiming as revelation to justify their lifestyle. They're saying that their sexual freedom was actually from God himself. And Jude says that they pollute their own bodies, or literally they defile the flesh in the Greek, which describes their sexual sin and the nature of their sin. And they reject authority by throwing off the lordship of Christ and God, as he mentioned in verse 4 already. And then he says they slander, they slander celestial beings, which in the context here of verses 9 and 10 indicates that they're claiming a spiritual knowledge and a special authority. But as we see, the only thing that they really understood well was their physical appetites. Look at verse 9. He says, But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. 
Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And what things they do understand by instinct, like unreasoning animals, these are the very things that destroy, him, destroy them. And so what's ironic about this whole picture is these men claimed knowledge of heavenly things, heavenly matters, but their comprehension of truth was actually no better than that of an animal. And by following only these natural instincts, they will be destroyed. And the idea that he's conveying here is this is not a temporal destruction. This is eternal judgment. This is when they will pay the consequences for their being enslaved, for their sinful desires. And so Jude, he ends this section on a note that's important throughout the rest of his letter. God's final judgment will strike these ungodly false teachers just like he did the Israelites in the desert, just like the angels who sinned, and just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the point is, God, um, grace without godliness leads to Gehenna, leads to judgment. You would think that he would kind of move on now, but he's not finished here. He keeps going. He's so concerned about the impact on the church that he launches one more attack against these people. And he starts by pronouncing woe. He says woe to them. And this was language used in the Old Testament by prophets who would announce the pain and the distress that was about to come from God's judgment and that was about to strike. And, and uh, let's see. Oh, and so th this is similar to uh, what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 3, verse 11. He says, Woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They will be paid back for what their hands have done. And so th the typical woe would announce not only the judgment that was about to come, but also the reason for that judgment. And that's what we see here in, in Jude uh, 11. He says, Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's heir, and they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Now, you may or may not be familiar with these people in the Bible, but why are they being judged, according to Jude? First, they've taken the way of Cain. Now, you can find this story in Genesis chapter 4, if you don't know. Cain's sin was that he murdered his own brother, Abel. Now, how is Cain then like these false teachers? He's actually an example of a person who chose wickedness over goodness. You see, when God confronted Cain about his evil sacrifice, Cain grew angry, and he killed his brother instead of repenting. And so he chose the path of evil. And then second, they rushed for profit into Balaam's heir. Now, Balaam was a quasi-prophet that was remembered primarily for being greedy, for his greed. And uh, you find his story in Numbers chapter 22. And you see that Balaam there was hired by the Moabite king Bala to pronounce a curse on Israel because he was afraid that the Israelites were going to attack them and overtake them. And although Balaam appears to be seeking God's will in the matter first, he ends up giving in to his desire for financial reward. And so the parallel that Jude sees here between Balaam and the impo his opponents here is that they were teaching error because they could make money by it. They could make a profit by it. But at the same time, they were also deceived enough to believe their own error. And then the last example, the last reason, is because they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Now, Korah's uh, rebellion, and Korah was a priest, and you can find this story in number 16. It's probably listed last here, or listed third, because of the uh, way in which God judged them. It was really incredible. It was spectacular. Uh, when Korah and the others in the community, they rose up against Moses and against Aaron, Moses said, well, let's let God choose who belongs to him and who is holy. And Moses said to the people, okay, if the earth opens up 
and swallows them all, then we're going to know that these people had contempt for the Lord. And guess what happened? Over 250 of them were swallowed up in the earth. Their entire household, all of their possessions, swallowed up in God's judgment. And the obvious parallel here is that these false teachers rebelled against God and His authority and His appointed leadership, and they too will perish in severe judgment. Look at verse 12. He says, These men are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit, and uprooted, twice dead, they are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Now, the early church would gather for a shared meal that normally ended in the celebration of communion or the Lord's Supper. And these feasts were a powerful symbol of the love that flowed among believers. And Jude is giving a warning here. Things are not like what they seem. All is not well here. These men, he says, are blemishes, which literally means rocks or hidden reefs at your love feast. They shamelessly continue to participate in the community meals without hesitation at all. And because of that, like a hidden reef, they pose a real danger to other believers who might be encouraged to think that one could remain a Christian without, with, by following this ungodly lifestyle. And that was a dangerous message. That was a wrong message. And Jude's He's calling them shepherds here, which also indicates that they were probably even leaders in the church. But they were the exact opposite of shepherds because the purpose of a shepherd is to watch out for others. And they had no concern for anybody else but themselves, as he says. And so then he goes into these four descriptions. And these last four descriptions are drawn from each area of the natural world. Clouds from the sky, trees from the land, waves from the sea and stars or planets from the heavens. And so both the clouds without rain and the autumn trees without fruit, they convey here the same idea. They don't deliver what they promise. They don't deliver what they promise. You're hoping to get much needed water or, or much needed fruit, but you end up disappointed. You're thirsty and you're hungry. But not only do they lack good works and they don't deliver what they promise they will, they specialize in evil works. He says they are wild waves, foaming up their shame. Their deeds here are likened to the grimy foam that coats the beach, and it leaves that sticky, sticky residue of shame behind. Isaiah 57.20, he may have this in mind, says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. And then lastly, he calls them wandering stars. And most likely he has here wandering planets in mind because in those days people believed that the heavens should display order and regularity and the planets seemed to stray off course in the heavens. And so they were an unreliable guide to the people. And Jude is saying that these people have wandered from the straight way to the way of evil and they have an eternal reservation of blackest darkness reserved waiting for them. So far... So far in Jude's letter, he points to the condemnation of these, godly, of these godless men. He refers to the Israelites being destroyed in the desert. He refers to angels being kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains. The uh, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah suffering the punishment of eternal fire. Uh, we see that eternal destruction basically waits for these men who would live like animals, 
according to their fleshly desires. And we see here in verse 13 that for them blackest darkness has been reserved forever. We're still on the third point. Grace without godliness leads to Gehenna. Are you starting to get the picture here? I mean, how could we not get the picture from this graphic language? Jude here never actually uses the word hell. And he doesn't teach directly about it either. But his language, as we've just seen, it reveals that he assumes the reality of what we call hell. And he uses punishment in hell as a deterrent to keep his readers from following the disastrous ways of these false teachers. Now, Gehenna comes from the Hebrew phrase that means Valley of Hinnom. And it was an actual place. It was the narrow gorge outside of Jerusalem that had an evil reputation in Jesus' day. And it's the place where children were burned uh, in, as a sacrifice to idols in the Old Testament and where the prophets used it as a symbol of uh, judgment in, in the Old Testament. And Gehenna came to be used by the Jews prior to Jesus as the word that best described final judgment. And that's why it's the primary word that Jesus uses throughout the Gospels to describe the, the place of final, eternal punishment. There are other words that are used to um, describe hell as well, like Hades and Tartarus, but these usually use images to try and capture its nature. Now, the idea of hell, for most people, it conjures up all kinds of strange images. You know, Maybe you have a, a Hollywood makeup artist image of hell and, and the devil and what, what it would be like. But you know, sometimes uh, we just think of Maybe flames or, you know, a, a creature in red with a, with a tail and a pitchfork. But hell and the devil have become great material for late-night comedians. And the whole idea of hell has come to be viewed as medieval, where those who believe in it are viewed by modern thinkers as intolerant and superstitious and even ignorant. And routine surveys tell us and show us that most people, both non-Christians and Christians, they believe in heaven, but much fewer actually believe in hell. So, it's not a surprise then that there's a lot of pressure on Christians from the larger culture to dismiss or to soft-pedal this idea of hell. Many of us are embarrassed to be identified with the insensitive references of TV evangelists or others who you know, have bumper stickers in their car that say, turn or, or burn. But I think most of us are really, we would rather just avoid the whole idea of hell altogether because it really doesn't fit well with this contemporary idea of Christianity where the focus is only on the love of God and only on His grace and making people feel good about themselves. We often lose sight about God's majestic and awesome holiness in the midst of our concern to present Him as a loving, kind, and gracious God, which He is. You know, in our community group uh, that gets together, we're going through the book called Christian Believes by Wayne Grudem, and it covers basic Christian doctrine and we spent two weeks talking about God's character and His attributes because it's critical that each one of us understands who God reveals Himself to be because it's really easy for us to neglect one side of God's character or the other. And we have to see that all of God's attributes, all of them coexist fully and in perfect harmony all of the time. God is always loving and gracious just as He is always holy and just. And so if we intend to be faithful to the scriptures in a biblical view of God's love and his holiness, then we have to maintain and proclaim a clear doctrine of hell as well. The New Testament clearly teaches that after death God will punish in hell those who refuse to trust Jesus in this life. 
Now, what that looks like or how long this punishment will last, that has been debated. And, you know, are the ideas of fire and burning, are they to be taken literally or metaphorically? You know, how can hell be a place of both fire and darkness? How does that work? Isn't the term everlasting destruction a, an oxymoron, like living dead or virtual reality? Now, I tend to agree with the, most of the evangelical scholars that see these as metaphors that are used to try and capture through the common experiences of this world the real pain and the real horror of hell. They clearly teach us that hell is a place where people will suffer agonies. But what these agonies are exactly, we really can't know for sure. But one thing is for sure, and that is the fact that people in hell are forever separated from God who created them and who loves them has to be one of the greatest sources of torment that you can experience. The Apostle Paul, he wrote to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1, he says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. Grace without godliness leads to Gehenna, judgment, eternal punishment, hell. <clears throat> Jew goes to great lengths to describe the lifestyle of sin and ungodliness that characterize these false teachers in the church. And we saw that they assumed that the grace of God revealed in Christ gave them the freedom to do just about anything that they wanted to do. They have no regard for the authority of Christ, and so they engage in all kinds of sins of the flesh. They are bliss, yet they claim to be Christian. Jude doesn't mince words here. He leaves no doubt that they are false teachers proclaiming a false gospel, and they are destined for hell. You and I, we have been handed down, we have handed down to us the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is a gospel of grace that leads to godliness. By grace, God saves us from Gehenna, from His judgment, through faith. By grace, God leads us to godliness through faith. By grace, God keeps and He protects us until that final day when we see Jesus face to face through faith. And obviously, this doesn't mean that we're perfect or that we're sinless because there's no way that that's going to happen in this life. But because of our faith, growing in God's grace and growing in godliness should be our life's pursuit. And it should be our real experience. And so knowing this, and knowing how much ungodliness still clings to each one of us, how much more should we be seeking God so that we might build ourselves up in our most holy faith, as Jude talks about later on in his letter? We'll take a look at that next week. The band's going to come up. Aren't you pumped? This, this is great news for believers. If you're not a believer... You have to take this as a real warning. But for believers, this is the most incredible news that you could ever imagine. We've been saved from God's wrath and from God's judgment by His grace. As we do every week, we're going to take communion. And this is the perfect time to really examine yourself and think about your life because communion represents the grace of God. Jesus' body that was broken for us and His blood that was shed for us pay the penalty for our sin. It's the grace of God so that we can have eternal life and live with Him forever. So that we can avoid the wrath of God that's coming to punish all sin and all ungodliness. 
And so as you take that cracker and you break it, you remember his body that was broken for you. And as you dip it in the wine or the grape juice, you remember his blood that was shed to cover your sin. We're going to worship God through songs as the band plays. Uh, We're going to worship God through our giving. We have offering boxes on the side walls and in the back. And we give to God because he's given so much to us. And we're going to worship God by fellowship. Feel free to hang out afterward, have some coffee, get to know somebody new, and uh, encourage one another. And thank God for what he's done for you as a believer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we thank you for your grace that has saved us from hell. We thank you for your love, Lord, that holds on to us and that keeps us, Lord, so that we know we will make it to the very end. Father, I pray that uh, you would help us to hear your words today, and they are hard words. I pray if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, Lord, that they would take this message to heart, that these are your words, they're not man's words, that hell is a real place and that there is an eternity that will be spent there for those that don't know you. Father, I pray that you would encourage us, those that may be struggling, those that may be struggling with sin, even as believers, Lord, that we might trust that you are able to keep us, Lord, and that you are able to deliver us, and that we might just place our faith and our hope in you. We thank you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.